right. Well, good morning, beloved. Great to be here this morning with all of you. Uh, if you're new with us, maybe you're um, even tuning in via the, the live stream. I want to um, welcome you to At the Cross. Um, today we're beginning a brand new message series, uh, Hope in the Midst of Suffering. Hope in the Midst of Suffering. It is a journey through the book of First Peter. And if you are new with us, uh, or maybe you've been here for a little while, um, what we do is, is we take a book in the Bible and we preach through it going verse by verse. Usually about, um, I don't know, about a paragraph at a time. And um, I break it up into just a couple uh, key points for us, um, something very easy to understand and apply to our lives. Um, you'll see the outline on the back of your bulletin. Um, so this week, if you are new with us, or if you've been here for a while, you came at a great time. You came at the ground floor of a new series. Um, so join me and open your Bibles to the book of First Peter, chapter 1. And uh, today we're just going to lay down a, a, really a foundation uh, for our study. We'll look at some of the key themes throughout the epistle from Peter. Um, Peter will introduce a number of um, just wonderful um, principles and themes that we can apply to our life. But um, first, let's just begin by reading the introduction in verses 1 through 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. And this is the word of the living and true God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Um, I want to begin our study today by looking at some of the historical context um, that surrounds the time when this letter was written and will really help us to better understand um, what was going on during, during this time. In verse 1, we read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect. And so here we see Peter identifies himself as the inspired author of the letter, and he most likely writes this letter um, just before or shortly after July 19th, 64 AD. And that was an infamous day in history. That was the day that Rome burned for nine days while Nero fiddled. The once great city of Rome was all but destroyed by fire. It was a city with a dense population. The inner downtown buildings consisted mostly of wood. The streets reportedly were incredibly narrow, disorganized, the whole thing of Rome built in a day. It was built quite hastily. And so the fire it literally ripped right through the city. Three of Rome's 14 districts were completely destroyed 
seven additional districts were severely destroyed. 75% of the once prominent city of Rome was in shambles. It was a massive fire. It was put out once only to see it relit for several more days. It must have been really a horrific scene to see. And the Roman people believed that their own emperor, Nero, had himself set the fire. Now, if you don't know much about Nero, he was an absolute maniac. Uh, this guy murdered his own mother. Um, he murdered his wife. He murdered his stepsister, Octavia, and reportedly murdered many, many more people. This guy was so twisted that historians believe Nero started this fire because essentially he had an insatiable lust to build. And when the Senate wouldn't allow him to build and to add on to Rome, well, he decided to burn the whole thing down so he could. And as you can imagine, it didn't go over well. When the people started to blame him, he needed a scapegoat. And he found one in this already marginalized group of Christ ones or Christians, those of the way. Nero said they did it, and so this already marginalized and persecuted group was persecuted brutally in the season in which Peter is writing this letter. Um, just to give you an idea of how sick Nero was, he would actually put dead animal skins, hides, onto these early followers as he would bring them out into the Colosseum caged and then open it up and unleash wild animals and dogs as they mauled and tore these early Christians apart. As the people cheered, it was entertainment. And if that wasn't bad enough, he had Christians rolled in pitch or in wax and then set on fire during Nero's garden parties as though they were human candles burning and lighting the night sky for their enjoyment. That is the context in which Peter is writing this letter into. The persecution which began in Rome began to spread throughout the Roman Empire. And as it spread, it touched places like Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And as it spread in those places, it began to affect the Christians who were there. Peter calls them exiles, pilgrims, strangers, aliens. It is an epistle written to true believers who are exiles in a hostile culture, who have suffered severe persecution, family members, imprisoned, missing, scourged, thousands having lost their lives for their love for Christ. This is whom Peter is writing to. Notice in chapter 1, verse 6, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of various trials. Look at chapter 2, verse 21. 
to you. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they heard the, hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He's saying Christ has set the example for us on how we are to suffer. At the end of verse 20, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. In chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you, to give it an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Sounds like a different gospel that is being presented today on the television sets. And in chapter 4, verse 12, he writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. I see this all the time. Christians are shocked. They're so surprised. Why? As though some strange thing is... Have you read your Bibles? But to the degree that you share the sufferings on Christ, keep on rejoicing. Chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore... Those also who suffer according to the will of God, look at that, it's God's will, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And then in chapter 5, verse 10, we're just taking a, a quick tour to see this theme throughout his epistle. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now it's obvious from those passages, these were people who were enduring horrific suffering. In fact, the persecution that broke out during this time would eventually catch up to Peter himself, Church history states that both Peter and his wife were both crucified for their faith and for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The emphasis of epistle then is hope in the midst of suffering. Hope in the midst of suffering. And it teaches believers how to live victoriously without losing heart, without wavering in our faith. And to always be looking forward to the glorious return of Jesus Christ when all suffering will cease. In chapter 1, verse 7, he talks about the glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Talking about when the Lord will return. In chapter 1, verse 13 of 1 Peter, he says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when? At the revelation 
of Jesus Christ, when the Lord is revealed, when the Lord returns. Look at chapter 2, at the end of verse 12. He talks about the day of visitation. That's the second coming of Christ. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Again, referring to the return of Christ. Chapter 5, verse 1, the glory that is going to be revealed. Chapter 5, verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Again, a reference to the return of the Lord. So we see woven throughout this entire letter, there's, there is hope in the midst of suffering to keep their hearts and minds set on the return of Christ. That this is something that we should all be, as Katie said earlier, waking up with anticipation. That there's a special crown for those who, who yearn, who are looking for the return of Christ. In chapter 1, Look at verse 3 for a moment. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Look at what kind of hope that we have to a living hope. Through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, not fading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So no matter what comes in this life, we have that promise. Now there's another other subjects that we're going to see here in 1 Peter. We're going to learn about the doctrine of election. We'll touch on that this week. We're going to learn about the foreknowledge of God. I'll probably have to be the next time. We're going to learn about the new birth and, and, of course, what it is to be born again. We're going to discuss our internal inheritance. What does that mean? We're going to learn about the blood of Christ. We're going to discuss what it means to be holy even as God is holy. We'll study how the milk of the word makes us grow. He'll tell us how to maintain a a confident and, and vibrant faith in the midst of suffering. He'll teach us practical things like how we should live in a world governed by a, a secular government. We'll talk about marriage relationships between a husband and a wife. We'll talk about the need to be able to defend your faith. We'll talk about evangelizing the lost. We'll talk about how God wants you to cast your cares on him because he cares for you. And that's just some of what we're going to be looking at. But first, notice how he addresses his readers in these first two verses. He addresses them as the chosen ones of God. And it says, first though, in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect. But in these first two verses, he also identifies them in relation to their, their, their 
they're placed in the earth, we'll say. And then secondly, he identifies them in relation to their place in heaven. Their place on earth and their place in heaven, we can see both in these first two verses. As far as earth goes, they are exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. As far as heaven goes, they have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So he identifies their, their earthly identification as well as their heavenly one. Let's first look, though, in regards to their, their earthly identification. The readers to whom Peter writes are said to be exiles. They're aliens scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now that word scattered is a familiar word to any student of the New Testament. It's the word diaspora in the Greek. The dispersed. It means dispersion. Um, it's a technical term for the dispersion of the Jews um, throughout the world during the um, Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. These are the Jews who were dispersed as a result of those captivities. It's used in John chapter 7, verse 35, and in James 1, 1. And both of them use a definite article. However, here in 1 Peter, he does not use it, and it's intentional. And the reason why it's important is this. It's because Peter isn't writing to a group of Jews who have been dispersed um, through the dispersa from Israel. Rather, he is writing to a group of Christians who are exiles, strangers spiritually, you see, not ethnically. So he's talking about people who are not so much strangers in an um, alien culture as strangers on the earth itself. He's saying, you don't belong here. You're in exile. You're a stranger in a strange land. You are away from your true home in heaven. Simply put, he's addressing the church. He's addressing the elect. And then Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, these are all provinces in modern-day Turkey. But during this time the letter was written, it's under control of the Roman empire which was expanding and and in that wide swath of provinces listed here they're scattered throughout the northeast there is a great number of churches ecclesias called out ones that were gathering and we know in the province of asia for example there was at the very least eight churches of course there were many many more but Seven of those churches were in Asia Minor, received letters from the Lord in Revelation 2 and 3, you'll recall. The seven letters to the seven churches. These were churches in Asia Minor in this same province. And there were other churches in Asia, like um, Colossae, not mentioned in Revelation. And of course, all the churches um, from Galatia, the Galatians. So there very likely would have been a number of churches in Pontus, number of churches in Cappadocia, a number of churches in Bithynia as well. So Peter is writing to a whole lot of folks and a wide audience. And why such a wide audience? Because the persecution that come against the Christians as a result of them being blamed for the fire 
being sent and sweeping through Rome. And everywhere that the persecution went, Christians were paying the price. And so he writes this epistle as if to embrace all of them, these exiles, and teaches them how to have hope in the midst of this terrible suffering and persecution that they're experiencing. But more important than their relationship to earth is their relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. And the thing Peter wants them to know most is that you are chosen by God. He wants them to grasp this tremendously comforting reality in the midst of their persecution when they might be questioning oh so much. He wants them to know that they are the chosen ones of God. Eklektos, to call out. The called out ones. It means to select, to pick out. So all of God's elect are chosen by God. In fact, this was even the term used for Israel of old to identify them. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Let me show you this, a well-known verse. It says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So, get this. God wasn't sitting up in heaven saying, Boy, I sure hope some nation will come along and believe in me. No. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, I chose you. Israel, my elect. Again, Deuteronomy 14, verse 2. The Lord essentially repeats this. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people of his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Again, we see the Lord has chosen a people for his own possession. In Psalm 105, verse 43, he calls Israel his chosen ones. In Psalm 135, verse 4, it says, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. Israel is new name for his own possession. Jacob was elect. The Lord chose him for himself. See, the Bible says that no man seeks after God. No, not one. It says in Psalm 14, verse 2 through 3, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man, to see if there are any who understand, any who seeks after God. But when the Lord looks down, he sees no one seeking after them. In fact, he says in verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And of course, Paul will quote this verse and repeat it in Romans chapter 3. So we have to understand that this is man's inherent nature. We were born dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1. 
We are by nature, Ephesians 2, 3, children of wrath. If God in his mercy did not choose us, no one would seek after him. Beloved, if you are a Christian today, it is because God chose you. Yes, thank you, Lord. That's the heart that each one of us should have. You are his elect. Let me show you this in the New Testament. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Most of these verses are are in your cross-references. But I want you to follow along. and You should have these marked in your Bible. A lot of you I know have spoken to me, struggle with this. So I want you to see for yourself in your own Bible just how clear this is. And we'll get to that word foreknowledge, by the way, back in 1 Peter. Probably not today. Next time we're together. But look right now at Matthew 24, verse 22. And I want you to see who the elect are, first of all. Let's just start with the basic, who the elect are. Verse 22, this is Jesus uh, speaking. He says, and if those days had not been cut short, that is the days of the great tribulation, the the abomination of desolation. If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. Now listen to this. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. You are the elect, they are the believers. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And of course, the true elect will not be led astray. See, I've told you beforehand, and then just jump down to verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So the elect are God's chosen. They are Christians. Turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 7. Again, this is the Lord Jesus speaking. He says... And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? And and will he delay long over them? Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Scrolling right along. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So you see, he is determined to to set his love on you for no reason of yours at all, but strictly out of the kindness of his grace and mercy. The chosen of God, that's who you are. One more from Paul. Turn to 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. Wonderful, wonderful verse. says, for this reason, Paul says, I endure all things. For the sake of those who are chosen, 
so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. I'm just out here doing ministry in order to bring the gospel to those that God has chosen. That's what I'm out here doing. You see, uh, what I think Peter is saying as he opens this letter is something really wonderful in 1 Peter. What he's saying to these persecuted Christians is, hey, you may not be the chosen ones of this world, but you are the chosen ones of God. Do you see how rich of an encouragement that would have been to read? That's how Peter opens his letter. And at first glance, uh, to speak of the elect exiles there, uh, seems kind of like a contradiction of terms, does it not? Uh, to be in exile is to be rejected. To be elected is to be selected. But there's no contradiction here. God's people are rejected by this world precisely because they have been elected by God. God has made us exiles on this earth. We are just temporary aliens. We are foreigners. We are strangers in a strange land. We are sojourners. And so when God chose us out of the world for himself, he destined us for an eternal inheritance. Peter's saying, although you are currently in exile, socially marginalized, hated, you, you feel the constant threat of the world's system against you. You are God's chosen people, and you're destined for eternal heavenly glory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah indeed. So Peter says, verse 13 of chapter 1, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This letter is loaded with not just incredible um, practical encouragement um, that's grounded in truth, in real truth. Not something you tell someone to make them feel better or not to worry about it. But he also at the same time gets into some real heavy doctrine. And to apply this letter to your life, you really have to put all of your thinking and ideas of things to the side and all of your trust into the sovereignty and the goodness of the God that we serve. And, and Peter just starts this letter by just jumping into the deep end of the pool <laughs> with the doctrine of election here. This just drives people crazy. So to unpack the real beauty of election, I want us to look at first the nature of our election. The nature. Um, because as spiritual aliens, the most important thing um, for Peter's readers was not their relationship to earth. But by faith, as Abraham did, they needed to look forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. Abraham also was a sojourner. And part of the way that Peter does this is by identifying them as the chosen ones of God. So, for example, he does this in 1 Peter chapter 2, 
verse 9. Notice what he says. But you are a chosen race. He's not speaking ethnically here. Spiritually, you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Can you grasp this reality of being chosen by God? Yeah, it's okay to shake your head. Wow. I mean, I, I, I sat there for a long, long time going. Beloved, the Bible says we love because he first loved us. You got a lot of a Bible to fight with if you're going to dig in on this. That's the nature of election. The nature of election is God has chosen a people for himself. And if you are here today and you truly love God, you are probably one of the chosen. God chooses people out of all the world for they belong to him. I want you to see this fantastic verse. Turn to Acts chapter 15 for a moment. Acts chapter 15, verse 14. Um, Acts chapter 15, of course, you have this incredibly um, important meeting going on at the, uh, in Jerusalem, the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, the, the whole church and the, the leaders and the elders are gathered. The, the 12 apostles come. Paul and Barnabas come for this big meeting. And, and they need to sort out this problem. They need to sort out whether Gentiles, in order to become Christians first need to have a surgery, right? It sounds crazy when you think about it. But the question was, do new Gentile converts need a circumcision to be part of the called out ones, the ecclesia, the church? I mean, can you imagine this conversation? Um, excuse me, sir. <laughs> I know you've been born again and all, but in order for you to come to this church, you're going to have to go out back and see the doctor. I mean, the men are leaving that church. But look at what he says in verse 14. This is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles. And then notice what it says. To take from them a people for his name. God's whole plan is to take out from them a people. To take out from them a chosen people for his name. Now, something inside of you resists this, doesn't it? You might be thinking, now, wait a minute. I remember getting up that day, and I chose God. And, and so we, we, we push back against this. We fight against this. Your fallenness fights against this. Why? Because we like to think, you know, I had a part of this. I had a part of this. I have decided to follow Jesus. But what is that? Pride? Boasting? Yep. We also like to think, well, that sounds unfair. And we'll get into more of this the, the next time we're together, but we don't understand what fair is. <laughs> okay? Listen. You have to retreat to faith, my friend, 
if you struggle with this, you have to believe what the Bible says. What does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches that we are chosen by God. Let me remind you, turn back to John chapter 15, our old friend who just left uh, John's gospel, if you're new with us. John chapter 15, you'll remember this verse. John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And what did he say? He said, you did not, what? Choose me, but what? But I chose you. And appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And you say, well, wait a minute, but I chose you too. No, you didn't. No one seeks after God. That's just how it is. Look at John chapter 17, verse 9 in, in the high priestly prayer. This is everywhere in your Bible. <laughs> he, he, he says in verse 9, I am praying for them. Jesus is praying for his disciples. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have what? Given me. The Father chooses, gives to the Son as a love gift, for they are yours. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Some of you have been waiting on me to get there. Here, here's the, um, the antagonist who wants to fight back against God. Paul's got, Paul's got you covered. God is, is going on talking about his choosing. He says in... Uh, Verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What? That doesn't sound very Jesus-like. But look at verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. In the Greek, no, no, no. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then look at verse 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Sovereign mercy. Well, verse 19, someone will raise an objection. He's going to say, well, why does he still find fault then? If God's got this whole thing figured out, then, then how can God be just and find fault in a man then? For who resists his will? Verse 20, you asked for it. On the contrary, who are you, old man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make for the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Listen, we uh, probably wouldn't be asking these questions if we understood just a microgram of God's holiness and justice. Oh, no. <laughs> when we argue with God, we are only 
showing off our fallenness and our pride and really just how much higher God's ways are than our ways. He demonstrates this over and over again. If you can't understand it, then I just call on you to believe it. That's what it says. He, he can't be any clearer than in verse 16. So it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And then what's he say before that in verse 15? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And praise be to God that none of us get what we deserve. Amen? Oh. Oh. It's uh, really probably from the devil, this stuff that goes on. A few more and then we'll close. Go to uh, Ephesians 1, verse 3. And, and again, we're just scratching the surface here, uh, surface with the time that we have. You'll find a lot more of these verses in the cross-reference um, in your bulletin notes on the back there. But look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. And again, this whole idea is because Peter is encouraging these exiles. He said, you are God's chosen. You are elect, regardless of what's going out in the world. And then look at us. We're going, no, we're not. <laughs> uh, you had nothing to do with it. I did. God's going, no. No. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, now notice verse 4, just as he chose us in him, meaning in Christ, before the foundation of the world. <laughs> when did he choose us? Before the foundation of the world. Where were you when that was going on? <laughs> we weren't born yet. Uh, before the world, before the world was even created, we were chosen? This, this is just incredible stuff. Verse 4 continues that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And look at this, to the praise and the glory of his grace. Not for our glory, you see. It is according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace. You see, when it comes to our salvation, God wants all the glory. Praise his name. Praise his name. Second Thessalonians 2 13. Listen to this. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has what? Chosen you. From the what? From the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So now we see that God has chosen his elect from the beginning. When was that, you ask? I don't know. Genesis 1-1 in the beginning? 
That's what he says. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. How, how can it get any clearer for us? How can anyone not see what this says? The nature of our election is God's chosen a people for himself. God has chosen a people for himself. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Here's another one that just boggles my mind. At the end of verse 8, he talks about the power of God. And he says in verse 9, God who has saved us and has called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Now we're finding out when the beginning was. In eternity past, according to his own purpose and grace, God had you in his mind. Wow. Is that not remarkable? <laughs> wow. This is incredible. But do you see how this would be such an encouragement to the persecuted Christians? God's saying, you, you might feel like strangers in, in, a, in a strange world right now, but no, I have set my seal upon you from all eternity. I haven't lost track of you. I am with you, declares the Lord. Let's wrap this up. We've got two left. Turn to Revelation 13.8. Revelation 13 is the, the chapter of the beast. It talks about the dragon who is uh, Satan. Verse 4, they worship the dragon because he gave his loyalty to the beast. He talks about the Antichrist during the last days. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? Verse 8, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. So again, this has already been sorted out from eternity past. God's not waiting and hoping at the end, gee, I hope somebody will choose me. No, all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast whose names have not been written. In other words, he's already written your name. From the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. When was your name written down? From the foundation of the world. <laughs> And then finally, Revelation 17, verse 14. These will wage war against the Lamb. This is the, the kingdoms of Babylon, and, and they will all unite at the end, and, and they will give their, their power, and they will give their authority to the beast, the, the great deception, the, the great reset, some will call it, and the Lamb, the Bible says. The Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings and those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. Oh, dearly beloved, you are the chosen. Not because of something you did, but according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Jesus said, you did not choose me, you see, but I chose you. He fulfills all his own promises. He makes all of his 
purposes come to pass. He is the heavenly potter who takes the lump of clay, this, this fallen humanity, and he fashions it as he pleases. He controls even the smallest of details. He causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called, the called out ones, according to his purpose, for those he foreknew, and we'll get into that word the next time, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. The reason God gave us the doctrine of election was to tell us, well, I'll say two things, I think. Um, number one, election tells us that God is in charge. God is sovereign. So that's a good reason, number one. And then number two, because he is so gracious, we see that none of us could ever earn it. None of us deserve it. So that we might then spend all of our days here praising his glorious name for God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us and gave himself for us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you do not love the Lord your God with all of your heart, I call on you to cry out to him today. These are some last days, and, and when our last day actually is, only the Lord knows. But each day that we have not been born again, we are walking dead in our trespasses and sin. We must turn from our deadness towards abundant life and mercy that is in Christ. Confess Jesus as Lord. Throw yourself at the, at the foot of the cross. There you will find mercy. There you will find mercy. And ask him, beg of him to give you a new heart. Not to make your life somehow better, but how you can burn the bridge and dump the old life and walk into the new and serve him every day with the rest of your life. Go to the cross as a, as a bankrupt man, empty-handed, as a sinner who all he needs is forgiveness of his sins. And there God will meet you. There God is faithful. And there God knows the heart. If um, you need prayers this morning or if, if God has moved your heart in, in any way today, um, you are not alone. We would be happy to, to pray with you if you'd like to come forward. And I invite you to stand as we sing, Is He Worthy? Yes, He is. Yes, He is. <laughs>